kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Episode 109 of Love That Album Podcast. It's February 2018 as I'm recording this. Welcome on board if you're listening for the first time. Welcome on board if you've been listening since episode one. Welcome on board if you've just caught somewhere halfway through the run of this program. You're all welcome. My name is Morris and this is a monthly podcast. We started out doing it bi-weekly, then every three weeks and now every month because I'm slack. And the whole purpose of this podcast is I'll take an album and get myself joined by a fellow music fanatic, and we'll just talk about that album. In general, we'll talk about musical arrangements, what we like about the lyrics, thematically what's going on with the album, a little bit of history of the artist under question. And for the last, I don't know, two, three years or so, we've been talking about albums in a broad sense and then maybe referring to specific songs that might link to what we're talking about thematically. This time around, we're going to talk about every song as we go. But who is we? I've got a very, very special guest. She's not been on this program since October 2015 when we spoke about... Dusty Springfield. Dusty Springfield. Dusty in Memphis. (laughs) How bad am I in not having you on since then? Shame on you, Morris. Shame on me. Well, you ought to hit me up. So the guest in question, (laughs) you may know her as Shannon Hurley. You may know her as Numbers Girl. I know her as Shannon Hurley, the Numbers Girl. Welcome on. Hello there. So thank I'm so glad that I'm on again. This is so wonderful to have fun. you back. So wonderful <laughs> to you. have you taken back. Now, why are you known as Numbers Girl? Because? Well, yes, because I, I help count down my husband's podcast, which is All Time Top 10, which you have been a frequent guest on. I have been a frequent guest. I think I've just gone over the 10 episode line. I think, yes, just done 11 episodes with Ben. Yes, and with Ben that, that is it. I'm, in, I'm breathing rarefied air now. I'm, I'm in the elite club of 11 time guests. Yeah, co-hosts. you're in the winner circle. I mean, I don't know how many other guests have been on that many times. So that's definitely an elite echelon of people there. I'm very, very excited about that. But really what I'm very excited about is having you on for the second time. And let's keep this going. So we are here to talk about The Police and specifically we're here to talk about their album Synchronicity released in 1983. But more of that soon. Shannon Hurley, aka Numbers Girl, aka singer, songwriter, musician, half of the duo Lovers and Poets. Now, we spoke about Lovers and Poets last time we were on the program, but we may have some new listeners on who've not listened to that episode, and I highly recommend, because we had a great conversation back then, as I recall. Sure. So please tell the listeners who may not have listened to All Time Top Ten, and shame on them if they have not, but talk to us a little bit about Lovers and Poets and your other musical work. Sure. Um, Lovers and Poets is an electronica project, and uh, we do everything in our bedroom, (laughs) all recordings. It's all just done on our, our Logic Studio. 
Um, sometimes we have an outside performer or two, but basically it's just Ben and, and me. We just love recording um, sort of chill pop, um, synthesizer-based songs um, with a, a bass groove and some sort of like trip-hop rhythms um, underneath. So, And it's usually just a little bit more dreamy. So yeah, that's basically the, the vibe of Lovers and Poets. It's, it's interesting you mentioned the trip-hop connection because I was recently listening to um, a song from your first album and the song was Only Bitterness Remains and I got a distinct Portishead vibe from that song. Ah, thank you for the compliment, actually. Portishead it's... is one of our biggest influences. Yeah, well, there you go. So I picked up on that. So you've obviously you did. Achieved, <laughs> in, achieved in that aim. So what are you doing at the moment? Are you actually recording anything new, either in your own name or under the Lovers and Poets moniker? We're always recording. I mean, we've got Lovers and Poets, which we call LMP for short. Um, we just, yeah, we're always working in the studio. I'm always working on solo stuff. Uh, I do trance, so I'm always working on top lines to give uh, to other producers all over the world. So always the grind. So anything to be released soon? Anything new coming up in 2018 that you'll put out to the general public? Possibly. I did give some tracks to the woman who uh, is awesome at licensing stuff for us. And so uh, if it does get licensed, like if it's on television at some point, we will probably put it out for our fans up online. But until that moment happens, we're not going to do that. We're going to try something a little different this time. Okay. Well, look forward to uh, hearing what it is that you come out with. So either you or Ben can contact me and we'll be plugging it away sure. on, on this very program to both the listeners. Before we go to the break, I should also say that as well as us talking about synchronicity and the police, my good friend Eric Reanimator will be coming on the show later with his album I Love segment. And this time around, he's going to be talking about a band called Ruts and their album The Crack. And the connection that he's made with the police is the fact that they were a punk band out in the late 70s who also had a heavy reggae influence, I think, mm. from England. But Eric sort of does a bit of a divergence from just talking about the band and the album, and he talks a little bit about cultural appropriation. So it's very interesting what he has to say. So wait till later on in the program. And, that should uh, be good. It's a really fascinating segment. But what we're going to do now is go to a quick break, and then uh, Shannon and I will be back to talk a little bit about Andy Summers, Gordon Sumner, and my personal hero, Stuart Copeland, <laughs> a.k.a. The Police. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Love That Album 109. <laughs> We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion.
we're back from break. Morris here in Melbourne, Shannon over there in Los Angeles. And I love the international timeline because I'm on a different day to you. You're on Friday. I'm on Friday Saturday. Night. And it's Saturday <laughs> afternoon here. It's just amazing. As I keep saying to Ben, I've seen your future, but I can't reveal because as Doc Brown would have said in Back to the Future, I don't want to screw up the time continuum by telling yes. you too much about your future. It's forbidden for you to it say is. anything about our future. <laughs> it is, it is. Let's talk a little bit about the police, pre-synchronicity. So I want to ask you, what were your earliest memories of hearing the police? Now, you're younger than I am. I'm, I'm an old guy. Yes. So I was a teenager. It was just part of the international zeitgeist. They were there. They were in your face, the biggest band on the planet. But I want to know, how old were you when you first heard the police and was it while they were actually a thing? Yes, um, I did know about the police while they were actually a thing. Um, I grew up in Indiana and they were all over the radio. Um, so Indiana loved the police. <laughs> so I was probably about 10 when I was um, when I became a police fan. Um, I was an MTV junkie. And so at that point, um, Synchronicity ha had come out. It was in heavy rotation. So uh, every breath you take, you know, that was played all the time on MTV. Mm -hmm. So I think that was probably the first video where I remember being able to differentiate, you know, like who, who the actual band members are and, you know, just uh, actually uh, hooking up in my mind. OK, oh, this is the band that I hear on the radio. So I probably did hear of them on the radio before that because I also listen to the radio continuously. Mm. But also everything, every little thing she does is magic also on the radio all the time. And that video was also in heavy rotation. So I would say about 1983. Okay. Now, when I asked you to come onto this episode, we didn't actually sort of originally sort of think that we we're going to cover a police album. I just said, hey, it's been too long. What would you like to do? And you suggested something from the new wave era. And mm -hmm. I just sort of want to talk for a couple of moments about the new wave tag, because even at the time, what was termed as new wave didn't make sense to me because it didn't really seem to me to be a musical description. I mean, there are a lot of bands which fell under that new wave banner and a lot sure. of them were bands that might have been under the punk banner before and were then mm -hmm. with trying something new but then there were some bands which struck me as never having done anything punk so at the time it seemed confusing to me <laughs> to have bands like Duran Duran and XTC and The Police and The Pretenders and Devo and Madness and Depeche Mode all under this one banner. I couldn't sort of work out for the life of me at the time what was the common link. So by you suggesting that you wanted to cover something new wave, what did mm -hmm. that mean to you? What did, that, what did that sort of come to your mind when you first suggested it? To me, um, new wave is something that falls between the cracks of what was punk because it was coming out of that burgeoning punk, punk scene, but it wasn't exactly punk. It was something a little bit different. It was a little more arty. A lot of those groups became very synth heavy. So a lot of that wasn't just the three chord guitar guitars so in that way like the police even though they, they came out of that punk scene and they started out as a three-chord band they definitely developed into something more and so i definitely think they fall under that new wave umbrella as we talk about it i mean i'm obviously going to be talking about how they covered a lot of different genres and they bridged a whole lot together mm -hmm. so i think that bands that fall under the new wave banner you know there's there's a lot of different criteria that they would have to meet you know um, but it's not just about fashion. Um, it's not just about the music. It could be just like the mindset of, you know, the kinds of things that they're writing about. Um, so there's all kinds of ideas that help form the new wave category. So would you suggest it's something like lyrical themes as well, as much as where they came out of? Because I, I can't necessarily sort of see 
like a musical wink taken in 2018 if I were to play someone who wasn't around then Don't You Want Me by The Human League and Precious by The Pretenders and say right many years ago both of these songs were lumped under the new wave banner mm-hmm. would yeah. you necessarily see a common link but if you go historically right. what would you say is the link between the two of them well I would say if you're going to have the Venn diagram of <laughs> punk and new wave I would say like Pretenders fall way more into the punk category especially since Chrissy Hind was more associated with the Sex Pistols, like she actually was around in London at that time. And so I would say that, I guess Pretenders fall under New Wave, but I would say that a band that uses more synthesizers, you know, mm-hmm. that would be an easy way to identify uh, a New Wave band. But then also you have the CBGB scene in New York when, you know, the Talking Heads were there and Blondie, you know, so it's it's hard because they hit a whole different scene where they were also coming out of the punk scene. Right. So in a way, yeah, it's very hard to, I mean, punk stayed punk, but New Wave just, I think that branched out more. We've been rehearsing for four months. We are, in fact, over-rehearsed. Before Andy Summers came on board, they had right. a, a fellow called Henry Padovani. Yeah. And I, I've sort of like described him as, unfortunately, the Pete Best. Yes. Of, <laughs> of the police world. Poor guy. <laughs> and yet the early few songs, I think, like Fallout, and I, like, I think those first two, three songs before Andy Summers came on board, he became the sole guitarist of the band. They do sound like a punk band. Oh, definitely. Uh, they were a punk band, for sure. I mean, look, I think Fallout is absolutely a fantastic tune. Yeah. But you, you can sort of see that if Padovani had stayed and when Andy Summers had said, well, it's me or it's him, and if they'd said, well, loyalty, we'll stay with him, I think they might have had a very limited shelf life. Oh, definitely, because they were just playing three chords. Um, they weren't giving Sting anything to work with um, if they would have stayed with Henry because Sting was wanting to branch out and write more songs with a different feel. And of course, you know, Andy wanted to stay with the band too. And he was just like, no, this this isn't going to fly. Unfortunately, Henry became the Pete Best of the band. And I feel so bad for him because I watched the VH1 behind the music, the police story. And Henry was, he was very obliging. He was just like, you know, what? I can't, I, can't, I couldn't argue with them. I mean, he seemed very nice about the whole thing and just very accepting. And so he just moved on. He got out of their way and, you know, let this machine of a band become what they became. I seem to have some sort of recollection that he came to Melbourne maybe in the last three or four years. He sort of might have been doing like a worldwide tour. I can't remember if there was a documentary about him or if he was peddling a book or something like that. But I seem to have some recollection that he came here to give a talk. And, you know, I'm really sort of a bit upset that I didn't go to see him. But having said that, I never got to see the police in the heyday. My huge regret is that Andy Summers came here maybe about 10, 15 years ago to do a few shows playing his tributes to Thelonious Monk. And right. and I didn't get to see that, and that really, really upset me. I would have loved to see him like in a small pub playing his interpretations of the music that I love. So I've never actually seen, oh no, I tell a lie, I did see Sting, I think on the Nothing Like the Sun tour, but, <laughs> oh, um, <my. laughs> but the man who I really, really, really admired, Andy Summers, didn't get to see him. And, I don't think Aww. Stuart Copeland has ever been out here in, in really? the city, apart from the police, but he's never sort of well, done any he, of his big theatre productions or anything like that outside. Well, of, he's uh, in LA all the time, so that's where 
you're going to have to see him. I mean, he's doing his operas out here, and I hear him on the radio. Like, he's he's on Jonesy's jukebox, and <laughs> so he's he's out here all the time. So come on out to L.A. <laughs> You'll run into him. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> the next time I get on an airplane. Let's talk a little bit about my hero, and I'm, I'm sure some of you admire Stuart Copeland. We're sort of going all over the place here. Look, I'm definitely a Stuart Copeland fanboy. I just sort of wanted to tell you for a moment about a podcast I listened to about two or three weeks ago. Now, some of my regular listeners may be able to guess the podcast I'm going to talk about. I don't want to mention it by name. He's a newish podcaster. He makes two shows, one which I admire completely, and the other one which I listened to one episode and thought, I'm done. I know, I know that one of my <laughs> listeners will know exactly who I'm talking about. Scott Smart, I'm talking to you. And basically, they did an episode where they just sort of took the police to task and said that, yeah, boring, dull. And Stuart Copeland, does he really think that he's a good drummer? You've got to be kidding me. I can go to any musical instrument shop downtown and find, I think they're based in Nashville. They said we can go to any drum shop in Nashville and find guys a hundred times better than him. I want to know what their definition of better is. Are they saying Stuart Copeland was not innovative or imaginative, that he had no chops, he had no power, no grasp of creating a groove, no mastery of rudiments, no imagination? I just have three words. Fuck those guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what the hell? For me, Copeland is that rare breed of drummer that you hear him, you know, straight right away who he is there's a lot of brilliant musicians out there for sure but he's one of those guys you hear i don't know whether it's patented or not but his use of splash symbols his uh his use of the hi-hat the cross sticking i mean we always sort of think the police reggae and yet if you sort of sat down and went track for track a lot of stuff that they did was not based on a reggae groove, and yet everything that he did, you'd know, yep, that's Stuart Copeland. Are there any favorite moments of his? Or I'll open this up. Anything that they did, like musically, that you oh, yeah. brought to your own musicianship? I, mean, I know you're a keyboard player, and none of them are strictly keyboard players, but there's anything <laughs> that they did oh, that yes. you brought into your um, own playing? Let's see. Um, just today, I was listening to Message in a Bottle, and I was really admiring Stuart Copeland's drumming on that. Just the tight feel of it, and going into that little the little ska beat you know and his use of color you're right the splash symbols the hi-hat he does all these little things that just add just the right texture and color to a song and it's just so tight I think that Message in a Bottle is a great example because every verse of the song, he does something completely different. It's right. And it's not because he has attention deficit disorder, but he's using every verse to color the lyrics in a different way. He's definitely what I call, like Liberty DeVito, my other big drumming hero. He's definitely someone who puts the song first. He's not someone who's just going to sit on the same backbeat for every part of the song. He's doing right. something completely You go back to message in a puddle and what he's doing in the first verse and the second verse he pulls it back again to just him and and the symbol with just a little bit of reinforcement on the toms from time to time but it's mainly hi-hat based and then in the third verse he's going crazy again sure he has his own rules and it, it may not have worked for any other player or any other band but for some reason it works with this band and Joe Copeland is not a boring drummer he's very exciting and he needs that to keep himself um, challenged and, and not bored because you could tell he's restless like it just his personality in general is just he seems like a very restless person and I think that comes out in his playing too I mean just think about it over the last 30 odd years since the police officially disbanded He's done projects, done a lot of soundtrack work. I think before we started recording, you mentioned something about him doing his opera work. I saw a video online where he's talking about 
how he'd gone and written the score for the silent version of Ben-Hur. So ambitious. <laughs> he, he, com- he completely is. I mean, like he's doing this new band now called uh, Gizmodrome with Adrian Ballou, who's right. done a million and one things, but you know, I sort of know him from King Crimson and from uh, Joan Armour Trading. I think he played with her in the 80s. And it's just amazing. It's like, what can I do now? What's the next thing I can do? So inspired by that. (laughs) That's not to take anything away from Sting as a songwriter, but just based on what I've seen Andy Summers do, what I've seen Mm -hmm. Stuart Copeland, it almost seems to me that Sting is the least ambitious of the three. And I'm not not necessarily talking about from whether you consider his songwriting great or a little bit dull. And I know that there are people on both sides of the fence, and I'm actually on both sides of the fence because I love some of the solo work and some of it I sort of find a little bit... (laughs) on the boring side but even just taking that and what he's done compared to what these other guys they always think stylistically what can we do next but maybe not being the public face not being the one who everyone knows by name they're afforded that luxury do you think that maybe it's because all of that time in the police um, Sting was the one that was getting all the attention and so to make up for it the two others were they kept just plowing ahead because they wanted to prove to the world that like they were worthy of (laughs) of music attention to who knows I mean the three of them all had to my way of thinking I reckon they all had big egos so mm-hmm. none of them wanted to be ignored but I guess the fact that people were going to show up to see a big sting concert after the police they maybe thought well you know I can afford the luxury of doing jazz in Andy Summers case I mean I think they're able to do whatever it is that they want and they can still keep themselves financially lucrative from writing soundtracks or being on sessions but still being able to do things knowing that they're not aiming it at the general pop fan who's going to provide them with millions of dollars worth of sales or something like that so uh, yeah look I I don't know I mean they, they have an ego but maybe their ego is more catered towards fellow musicians I, I, I really truly don't know or, or maybe they're looking more at the legacy I don't know does that sound terrible because I'm sure Sting wants his legacy to survive but it's a different type of legacy it's funny that we're, we're starting um, the conversation by talking about uh, everything that happened after the police <laughs> sure sure because <laughs> we'll come to that album specifically but I, I guess when we're talking about synchronicity we probably won't have the time to talk about what went on afterwards unless we can say right well this song seems like a perfect example of something that Andy Summers did with Robert Fripp for example right um, and I know that you were you have been listening to um, the Summers Fripp collaboration I didn't get a chance to to hear look, that I, so I'm interested to see how, how you feel about that uh, look, that was an album that I listened to many many years ago a friend of mine who I'd play with you know when we were teenagers he was a fantastic guitar player and you know, he'd come over to my place and we'd play in my garage and he introduced me to that album. Actually, he introduced me to a lot of great jazz guitarists when he said, have you heard this? It's not quite jazz and it's not quite rock, but it's the two of them sort of doing the experimental stuff that I guess you know afforded them the chance to do that. We can do this side project. We don't need millions of people to buy this, but I think you know because Andy Summers was still riding on a high with the police on the A&M label, they said, all right, we'll give you the indulgence of doing whatever it is that you want to do. And this might have been, I can't remember what year that was. It might have come out just before Synchronicity. And I know that in that two-year gap between Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity, you know, Sting took the opportunity to make a couple of films and uh, mm-hmm. write, this, write the soundtrack for the film Brimstone and Treacle. Actually, I was just do a side thing. Have you ever seen Brimstone and Treacle? I didn't see the uh, actual movie, but I watched the video of, of the uh, ending credits. Oh, and right. I have to say that it's crazy that Sting, Sting was a great actor. <laughs> 
he didn't have the dance moves quite down, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it still felt like we were watching a, a you know a music video. It is a music video. That song, that little film clip for "Spread a Little Happiness," is actually not in the film. That has got nothing to do with the film. Oh, right, he, right. He, made, he made the film "Brimstone and Treacle," which. If you've, for those of you out there who've seen it, you know it's a nasty little piece of work. Very dark comedy, and I believe at the time it actually got banned in some places. There was talk about it being banned here, but it actually did get a run. I went to see it in the cinema back in the day, and I thought, whoa, this is a nasty little film. But it is blackly comic, and Sting definitely showed that he has acting chops. Why did the film get banned? Uh, we'll talk about that off air. Uh, okay. This is a, this is a family-friendly podcast. Oh, I see. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, look, before we get into talking about synchronicity in its own right, I wanted to talk about the last couple of Police albums against the first three Police albums. I consider them as two distinct entities, and some of that may have something to do with the producer, Nigel Gray, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. did Atlantos de Amor, Zenyatta Mondata, and... Regatta de Blanc, not in that order, versus Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity. They're two very distinct periods. Do you consider that a valid sort of distinction sound-wise? And if so, what's your favourite? Do you have a favourite? Yes, I consider... I mean, I, I think... I don't know how you say his name. Is it Hugh pa- Padgham? Hugh Padgham, yeah, that's right, yeah. Hugh Padgham, the one who produced uh, Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity. Mm. He's my favorite because I was able to, you know, kind of look at all the albums that he's done from other artists that I like. I was able to see the through line and all, and all these different artists that he's worked with and, and the aesthetic that he places on it. And I think that the producer is always the additional member of the band. <laughs> so for me, I mean, it's just an aesthetic thing, but... Um, I really do like uh, the last two albums compared to the first three, but I mean, I still love the first three as mm. well. But just at a pinch, I'd say I prefer the first three. But I'm not one of these people who says, "Oh, by the time they got to Synchronicity, it was all bullshit and it was all bland." And I prefer the first couple. I like it all, but I at a pinch prefer the first three because it comes down to I guess my philosophy about how the Police as a three piece sounded mm-hmm. different to other bands that were three pieces. I mean, you know, think of bands like, I don't know, Rush, for instance. The mentality is that the band with only three members has to fill in every space so they don't sound like sure. there's only three members. You've got four or five members, then there's always someone there to fill in the gaps, cover the spaces musically. Whereas uh-huh. I think those first three albums by The Police, they wear the sparseness proudly on their sleeves and they don't feel the need to fill in every little space. There's a couple of songs here and there which might be an exception, but if you listen to Walking on the Moon or I don't, right. know, don't Stand So Close to Me, it sounds like a three-piece, but I think that's a good thing. And by the time they get to Ghost in the Machine, and certainly to a lot of synchronicity, they're trying to sound like a bigger band than they are. And that's not to the song's detriment, but just that sparseness was something that initially attracted me to the band in the early days. And you know, a Roxanne sounds very, very sparse. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just more organic. Um, there's not as many synths or, you know, like added piano, not as many outside players. It seems like it was more of a vacuum, um, which is also a very pure feeling. So, you know, it hits like Don't Stand So Close to Me Mm. that it was able to raise the standard of what you thought a three-piece could be, Mm, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, I love... I love a lot of the songs from the first three albums, too. I don't know if this is something that you heard back in the day, but certainly when Synchronicity 
came out as a new album and it seemed like the music writers in the newspapers and the magazines, at least what I heard here, there were people who were saying that it was the police's Abbey Road. That always seemed like such lazy journalism. And first of all, I don't think that the development of the band, and bearing in mind what we've just spoken about, the sound of the last two albums being different to the sound of the first three albums, but between Please Please Me and Abbey Road, <laughs> It's not the same thing as between Atlantis, no. De Amour, and Synchronicity. Yet the two albums sound different from a production perspective and certainly in some musical and lyrical perspectives, but we're not talking about that same level of... Not at all. Yeah, there's not an evolution the way you would see with the Beatles because, let's face it, the Beatles kind of went from black and white to color. Yep. Um, and, and it was also part of the times, too. I think that historically, when you look at um, where we were as in the world at that time you know in the early 60s versus you know 1969 i think that you know people had grown up with the beatles and they saw this huge change and the, the beatles grew up too mm. but i feel like with the police like they just it was just cut too short you know and all of a sudden boom you know they're they were over and it's like uh, yeah i don't think they had as much of a musical evolution as the beatles did for sure is there anything we can come up with that is a little sexier than just a press conference? Okay, look, we've gone and yatted on enough about the police in various aspects. We should be talking about synchronicity in its uh, entirety. And as I said at the start of the show, normally in the last couple of years, we've been going through talking about the album as an umbrella, talking about musical motifs or arrangement, things that we like, and then referring to specific songs that reinforce those opinions. But Shannon and I decided that this time around, we're going to go back to the first format of Love That Album, which was to go song by song. So mm -hmm. we're going to go away, have a break, and we'll come back and talk about all things Carl Jung and <laughs> being paranoid and stalkerish. So um, you're listening to Love That Album, episode 109, with Shannon Hurley on that end and myself, Morris, on this end. We'll be back in a moment. Let me tell you something, brother. If you want a best wrestling podcast and film podcast combined together, you can only go to one place, and that's the Suplex. Whoa, 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 buddy, what are you doing? Huh? What? What are you doing? Got the promo for the Suplex Multiplex, brother. Okay, first and foremost, terrible, terrible Hulk Hogan impersonation. Secondly, we can't do the Hulk Hogan impersonation. We scrap that. Bye. All right, you see. Uh, I don't want to get sued. Uh, we've seen what Hulk Hogan's lawyers can do. Uh, so we just scrapped the idea entirely uh, just to be safe. And we're just going to go a different route. Uh, like what? Uh, I don't know. How about uh, Suplex Multiplex, the best of professional wrestling and cinema? You can find the show at suplexmultiplex.libson.com and at the freaking awesome network. That kind of sucks. Yeah. And we're back from break. Thanks for sticking around with us. Thanks for joining us. Tell your friends we exist so then we can get more people listening to the words of wisdom that Shannon Hurley and myself will have to say about the police and about synchronicity in particular. So, as I said earlier on in the show, we're going to cover this track by track. Not something we normally do. Haven't done in about two, three years, but I feel this album sort of warranted it. So we'll start off with the opening cut on the album, Synchronicity 1. 
Synchronicity 1, um, it's sort of an overture. Do you mm. feel that way? Yes, I sort of do. We have two songs that are called Synchronicity on this album, Synchronicity 1, Synchronicity 2. We, we want to go into talking about Carl Jung and what Synchronicity <laughs> actually is. But I also thought, Carl, this is a great, it's an overture for what's to come. And Synchronicity 1 is saying, this is what Synchronicity is about. And Synchronicity 2, which we'll get to later on, this is an example an of example. What, we're talking, <laughs> what we're talking about. My thoughts is that I absolutely love that little synthesizer part that starts out with the bells. Mm -hmm. There's something very exciting and adventurous about that alone that I think it's a great intro for an album just to like kick it off. But yeah, I mean, of course, it's it's a culmination of, well, not culmination, but it's telling you that this is, you know, this is all about synchronicity, which is a Carl Jung theory. And if um, I was reading all about this in Wikipedia too, so yep. uh, <laughs> something that I found really funny was that Stuart Copeland, he had a hard time keeping synchronicity one and synchronicity two straight. And so he had to remember that, oh yeah, synchronicity one is the one with the bells at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> But he couldn't even remember. I mean, it's funny when you think about how little they played together. You know, he, he probably got to look at that set list, you know, just, you know, for that last year and a half or something. And then it's like, we've been listening to this to this album for all these years. But at one point, this song was new, you know, so right. even for the band. So, I mean, we didn't even get to see them, you know, really play out this album that much. I think that final tour, I'm not <laughs> sure how long it was. must have been at least a year or something like that. And that's actually, yeah. actually Melbourne has the distinct honor or whatever you want to call it of being the last place, not until the reunion in the noughties, that was the last place that the police played live. They played in Melbourne's showgrounds. I remember a lot of my friends going off to see them play. I think Brian Adams was the other international support and another band, Australian Crawl, and I don't remember who else. A performance by the famous Royal Australian Aboriginal Kangaroos who will be performing the balalaiki dance, as indicated in uh, Rachmaninoff's third movement of his famous symphony dedicated to Horatio Algernon, who, as we all know, was a great culinary expert who designed incredible high-tech analog versions of spaghetti mix. They were playing all these big arenas all around Australia, and Melbourne was the last place that they played before saying, no, we've had enough of each other, let's yeah. call it a day. So we had that distinct <laughs> honour of breaking up the police. Crazy. <laughs> you were saying you did some research uh, looking on Wikipedia. So what did Carl Jung actually have to say about synchronicity? There's a, a line in there, Spiritus Mundi, mm -hmm. uh, which actually Ben asked me about this morning. He said, what does that mean? Uh, spirit of the world is what that is. Mm -hmm. Those lyrics are a term from the second coming. It was actually a William Butler Yeats term. But Carl Jung synchronicity theory, it refers to the collective unconsciousness. This whole album, it's about psychiatry and it's just about like what you have in your deep in your mind and I feel like actually every song is kind of about a different sort of complex if you list down the different songs so I feel like this over this is the overture but then we've got all the different examples of, of these theories mm. underneath it something that I'd read because I spent all these years sort of not really looking into what synchronicity was about or reading the works of Carl Jung which had seemed way too complex for my simple mind but I'd read something that at a pinch, at a simplistic pinch, synchronicity was about meaningful coincidences. And mm -hmm. if something happens to you at one point, you hear about something that happens somewhere else and you make a personal connection between what's just happened to you and what's happened somewhere else, your thing didn't necessarily cause it. It's not like chaos theory and the butterfly's wings flapping in one part of the world causing an earthquake in another part of the world. But I don't know, maybe that is seen as some 
sort of relation to synchronicity. But if you hear about you hear about something else happening somewhere, and you're thinking, "Oh my goodness, this just happened to me." Is there a coincidence? Yeah, you you actually make that choice of connecting the two independent events. Like maybe there's something that happened in your mind to bring those coincidences together. Right. (laughs) A lot of the lyrics of this song are about him saying, "Hey, folks, Professor Gordon Sumner here. I'm going to tell you what (laughs) synchronicity actually is." I want to talk to you about the works of Carl Jung because of those viewers that are those listeners that don't know it sting was a school teacher and mm. he did teach english <laughs> so i get the feeling that he sort of liked to let his listeners know hey i'm really well read go back i'm to, intellectual <laughs> uh, go, well go back to don't stand so close to me and he sings about just like the old man in Nabokov. Book by Nabokov. <laughs> of course and that's that's how i knew about that book too is because right. sting sang about it in a song you right. know so <laughs> you were saying that this is a song that just jumps out of the gate and I actually sort of was thinking about that this is probably the most energetic start to a police album since Outlandos Do More so you think like next to you opens that album and yeah. Message in a Bottle on Regatta de Blanc it's sort of energetic but really this is full on power synchronicity this is killer yeah next, next it's a great start to an album uh, yeah and they open their tour with it you know I mean that's it was a great tour opener I mean I guess that would be a nice way to write an album to think like oh what is going to get people off their feet and what's going to be just what's going to slay why wouldn't you start a show like that and he had the luxury being able to say right we have this new album and it's such a jump out of the box sort of energetic type of song that we don't have to rely on something that you knew we did three four years ago one of the big hits because this will become a future big hit for you and it i guess it was definitely i like how this song actually is composed they have this three note motif which makes its way as a synthesized horn section at the end as the lyrics that sting sings It just sort of occurred to me. I've only just recently left my acapella group that I've been in for the last 11 years. And I'm thinking, why the hell didn't I arrange this for the Ice Halos? We could have had... This would have made a brilliant acapella song. Guys, anyone in the group, if you're listening to this, I'm available to write this as an arrangement for you. Just saying. Just saying. If you want this, I'll happily write it. But, you know. The interesting thing as well about this, and we're coming back to Stuart Copeland, is how it seems like he's playing almost like a 4-4 pattern against a 6-4 rhythm. If not for the opening of the hi-hat at the end of the 6-4, you wouldn't know it. But he's basically otherwise playing a 4-4 time against what's a 6-4 song. And it, it's the cleverness of how this song is arranged is it never sounds really, unless you're thinking about it like a 6-4 song, it really sounds like a straight-ahead it really does. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds 4-4, so... <laughs> and would you say, is it a call and response sort of thing that Sting is doing with a, the connecting principle? Yeah, oh, is absolutely. Um, yeah, and then there's like the wall of Stings that that shout back, so... Right. It's almost like the the law of synchronicity happening within the song, you know, like one event happening over here and then here's the other event happening. So it's almost like it's portraying something that is happening. Like uh, there's this balance of things yep. that are happening. So. That, that's actually brilliant. I hadn't, hadn't thought of that. So he's musically emulating the Carl Jung theory of synchronicity. Though. I, I, I really yeah, like it's a little bit of, not, not word painting, but yeah, there's something about like, yeah, uh, theory painting, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this is an example of, of, you know that early 80s 
I don't know, would you call it synth pop? And yet, you know, with Stuart behind the drum kit, it could never be robotic or... or no, uh, um, it's just jazzy, proggy pop, I guess. Mm. <laughs> pop rock. Whilst it's not the first use of synth on a police song, because he sort of had that all over Ghost in the Machine, and yet mm-hmm. synchronicity is its own beast. Yeah. So, um, Do you think that um, also the connection is the air studio that they used in Montserrat? Oh. I think there's there's some sort of a magic about that. Um, I know that Duran Duran, Seven and the Ragged Tires. I don't know. I don't think you're a big fan of Duran Duran. No, no, but no, no. But, but but there are big <laughs> there are big bands. So that it was the oh, studios yeah. were obviously catering towards a certain type of sound. So Paul McCartney, Rush, Ultravox, or- orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Hmm. Sheena Easton, <laughs> uh, Black Sabbath, Rolling Stones, Climax. Uh, blues band was the first to record there in 1979 right so uh that's a band i I love (laughs) that studio actually was demolished hurricane hugo came and just wiped everything out um i think it was in the the late 80s i think 1989 Mm -hmm. so i think within just about 10 years there were a lot of uh bands recording there and and now it's a modern ruin so you know what? Actually, like why, I'm really kicking myself because Air Studios wasn't that taken over by George Martin. Yes, it was actually. That's, that's just sort of come to my mind because I remember seeing a documentary about George Martin, and he was talking yes, about some studio, right. and and I was thinking, hang on, is that the one that he took over? And in which case, I remember I think the Little River Band or, or something might have gone and recorded there, and. So there you go. Well, certainly, dare That's I go it. saying, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a studio with some big bands played. Holy shit, of course. Oh, George yeah. Martin. <laughs> and when you look, and, and yeah, and do you remember George Martin kind of walking over? I think he, he walks over to the swimming pool, which I'm looking at on the internet right now. Right. And that swimming pool just looks so eerie. I mean, it's just like, it's weird. It's like a ghost of a, of a recording studio. So there's something magical that happened there in the Caribbean. I really do. I, there's something about that. And I know that Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity were, were both done there. And I think some overdubs were actually done in Canada. But for the most right. part, it was done at Air Studio. All right. Well, let's move on to the next cut on the album because we have 11 of these songs to get through. The second song on the album is Walking in Your Footsteps. seems to not only link to global themes in a way that Sting continued to do once he sort of became a solo artist and I'm thinking of songs like Russians and Children's Crusade and They Dance Alone but it's also I guess maybe logically in a way the most non-police song on a police album is, is that something you reconcile with oh yeah it, it sounds a bit like a precursor for what is to come for sting's solo career mm-hmm. it's a lot more sparse the lyrics are almost preachy they can they can almost feel that way sting was always <laughs> earnest if you think you go back to the early days and yet there was always something somewhere where he'd come up with you know maybe something a little bit funny and certainly like if you had a songwriter like Stuart copeland or andy summers writing sally on uh, the first album yeah. <laughs> you know they they wouldn't let him sort of fly too much up his own ass but this album i think the other two apart from their two individual songs had little or no creative input into this album and whatever mood sting was in at the time he thought right gentlemen i, I have some concerns and this album is my album to preach my concerns so yeah preach is definitely something that comes to mind 
Yeah, but I mean, still very intellectual and definitely a great subject to touch on, you know, just in case people do need a reminder that <laughs> uh, we too can become extinct. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, uh, sure. you know, It's a good song and definitely is worthy of, of being on the album. You know, I, I think there's little things that Andy Summers does where it almost sounds like uh, an extinct dinosaur, you know, just like bellowing out a little bit, you know, just right. like the reverb and the echo attached to the guitars. That's one of the things I admire about Andy is he basically said every song, what guitar sound do I need for this song? What's the lyrical content? Yeah. What's happening here? He's not doing the same guitar sound. I'm not even talking about how he approaches it from a performance aspect, but he's thinking, right, well, what effects pedal am I going to use here? Things where he's doing just something rhythmically. You go back to Canary in a coal mine. That reggae sort of thing with a little bit of reverb going yep. on there. And yet this song sounds Tonal-wise, nothing like that. And no kidding. Like, you, you just can't pin them down. I mean, in a great way. It's like, going back to listening to all these songs, I'm so blown away by Andy Summers' musicianship. Just in incredible. Yeah, how does he come up with these incredible lines? It's just a very creative way. As you've already gone and said, this is a song about evolution and how mankind is in danger of extinction. And in some ways, this song is more relevant than ever, unfortunately, in 2018. Yeah. It is Sting's earnestness. I mean, for me, the great song about mankind's extinction is Bob Dylan's Hard Rain. I wouldn't necessarily think of walking in your footsteps in the same league as that. I guess it's partly because of the word I said to you before, earnestness. And yet, I guess I sort of respect him for wanting to come up with something musically that was a little bit different here. I mean, this is something in a world music vein. You've got, you got panpipes, or at least synthesized panpipes. Oh, I yeah. Don't, I don't think we yeah. ever heard that on a police record before. And I'm struggling to think, I don't know if you can, Shannon, about any other song that has no Stuart Copeland drumming. It's either a little bit of synthesized percussion or maybe it's a hand drum. I don't know if it's a jambé or something like that that he's got on there. It's, as I said, the most unpolice-like police <laughs> song. Sure, but I'm, I'm sure that Stuart was glad for the little break, you know, like in between, just like little light percussive drumming and that's sure. it. So, and you know, and it's a nice touch. So, yeah, it's like a little respite before heading into the, like the meteor songs of the album, I guess. Coming back to the themes of synchronicity for a second, this is not necessarily a meaningful coincidence. I think in this song, Mankind's Stupidity over the centuries could very well lead to its demise. You know, it's certainly mm -hmm. mankind's treatment of its fellow inhabitants across the planet. And I'm not trying to sound hippy-dippy or anything like that. Mankind's thoughtlessness or stupidity has gone and fucked up the earth and that's not a coincidence it's it's proven so that's less about synchronicity if we're going by the Carl Jung definition I feel like there are so many dumbasses out there though that don't realize that there's a connection you know there's people that don't believe in global warming still so mm -hmm. for those people they might not even see the connection we're I mean we're in danger but we but most people don't even I mean they'll deny it I don't know we're getting very deep for an album I know and I, I just had a conversation <laughs> with somebody who claims that he's a flatter Arthur. And after about two minutes of talking to this person, I luckily didn't have to talk to him anymore. And plus, you can't out crazy crazy. And so you can't, there's no way to argue with a crazy person. I want to call on Sting for advice and solace because <laughs> I didn't know how to deal with it. <laughs> Let's go to um, the third song on the album. Oh my God. Thank you. 
This is before、yeah. it was an internet acronym. It was you actually wrote out. <laughs> oh my god! Not none of this、oh, OMG yeah. nonsense that the teenagers and and the grown-up teenagers do. There it is.、It's, oh my god! This is one of maybe. Two or three songs on the album that I think could have fitted in a Nigel Gray era police. Yeah,、album. I agree. It's got the sparseness there, and it's got that sort of tight feel without necessarily going. There's a little bit of the reggae feel here. I feel like the fretless guitar kind of gives it away to be of that later era. Oh <laughs>、uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's fair <laughs> enough. Yep, sure. I feel like in the earlier Ghosts and like if it or if it was from one of the first three albums, it would have had just like a straight bass, and I don't. Know. Like it was a little too much chorus、uh, effect in the guitars and stuff. I don't Actually, know. I, you know, I rather like that. <laughs> I, I, I do too. I'm a big, I'm a big critic, I guess, of overdriving the effects pedals, but I think it really works here. Better, better, a better over, overdriven guitar than an overdriven synth. Oh, okay. I'm gonna shut my、so. mouth here. <laughs> No, but I think it works very well for the song, and I do love effects. Like Ben will tell you, my husband will tell you that too many effects it will, you know, will make a production sound dated. Yes. But I actually like the timestamp. I like knowing that. Oh, that reminds me of 1982. Or <laughs> I actually like some something that gives it a little bit of that dated sound because it reminds me of that era. Sometimes I don't like timeless. Sometimes I like knowing the specific era. I can sort of see both sides of the argument. I would say that Ben. Is right for a song like "Don't Stand So Close to Me" '86. That, oh, yeah. That yeah. definitely sounds of its day, but I don't think this does.、Uh, notwithstanding that these songs have been ubiquitous and played on radio forever and a day since they were recorded. But if you avoided the radio and I was able to play you any of these songs for the first time, maybe "Synchronicity One" would seem. Of its day, but I don't think this song necessarily would. Even with the fretless bass, I still think there's something fresh, and maybe the I don't know if it's overdriven, but the Andy Summers shimmer, I'm going to call it. Sure, that might be something for your listeners. You know, like tell us, does that? How does it sound to you, to your、mm. ears? You know,、yeah. is it fresh still? You know, <laughs> right in. Put in something on the Facebook page. We'd、yeah. love, to, love to hear your thoughts. Lyrically, the closing stanza of this song. He goes back to older themes in a couple of ways in this song. He quotes from every little thing she does is magic, saying just in the fade out, "Do I have to tell the story of a thousand rainy days since we first met? It's a big enough umbrella, but it's always me that ends up getting wet." To me, this isn't lazy, but it's I think the perfect use. Of a sentiment in each song that means something completely different. In every little thing, it's the self-pitying rant of a stalker. But in oh my god, it's a frustrated rant of someone who's been told all his life about the grace of God and is pissed off for all. These reasons that all the wrong things that he sees happening in the world, he hasn't necessarily stopped believing in God or become an atheist or something, but he is questioning if everything he's been told is true about the misfortunes in his own life, and that can't be sting because you know he's a rock star with millions of dollars. Then why are all these bad things happening to me, or why are all these bad things happening in the world? I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to take the bad with the good. No, I was going to say I like the explanation of.、It. I've always wondered why he. Use that lyric again in the song, but that was I quite like what you're saying.、Mm. I can definitely see that. Any other thoughts that you might have specifically about the song, you know, thematically, lyrically, that it means something to you, or any specific?、Um, to me,、um, no. This is actually one of the songs on the album that I don't have a lot to say about. 
musically, you know, I, I do like the fretless bass and, <laughs> right. um, yeah, I mean, I, I like your explanation of the, that lyric because I have always been puzzled by it, but mm. yeah, it looks like there's a lot more meaning held to it than I ever, I ever imagined. So thank you for opening up my eyes. <laughs> my pleasure. Love that album, educating people with dumb theories about music lyrics. Uh, <laughs> the fretless bass thing here, I, I imagine that he was listening to uh, a lot of Stanley Clark or, you know, people like him were his hero because sure. I don't think I don't think well, Sting plays much fretless bass across any of the police mm-hmm. albums. Um, what does Ben say? Does he have a thought on that? Do you know? I'm not sure. Let's talk about what seems to be the most divisive song. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's not divisive. I think a lot of people sort of actually say they hate it, but I find it divisive because I love it. Let's talk about Mother. So this is one of two songs on the album that I'm going to make an Alfred Hitchcock connection to. And this one, I guess, is a lot more mm-hmm. obvious because you could have called this song Norman Bates's song. Norman Bates's mother. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if Sting was going to sort of talk about Jungian psychology, Andy Summers, and this is his sole contribution to the album from a songwriting perspective. Well, he did a collaboration with Sting on Murder by Numbers, but this is his only sole written contribution to the album. He probably said, well, if Sting's going to go all Jung, I'm going to go all Sigmund Freud, talking about psychosexual theories and mother. And I, I sort of see that this contribution is sort of like the John Entwistle contribution to the album. Yep. So if Sting is being earnest, Andy Summers is being humorous, like John Entwistle mm-hmm. did. If you think about who's next, and every song is mystical and meaningful by Pete Townsend, and then John Entwistle comes up with My Wife. Right. So this is the humorous connection to the album. So I'm going to ask you, before we go into the feedback that we got on the Love That Album page, I want to know, where do you stand on Mother? Oh, so you want to know if it's yay or nay? I want to know if it's yay or nay, and why. Okay, it's yay for me. Bless your um, because, cotton socks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I may find it funnier than it's supposed to be, but I think the delivery in the song is fantastic. Is to me, it's so funny. I laugh out loud every time I hear it. Like it, just so much angst in it, and just you know the actual Oedipal complex mm-hmm. behind it. Like it, to me, it's just a very well executed <laughs> song. The connection between John S. Entwistle's role in every Who album. This is definitely that. Kind contribution i think you're totally spot on with that like you can't have too much of it it's just a little bit of spice that you need in this album (laughs) but i think it was definitely not a mistake for them to put this on the album i think it was fantastic and i am with you 100 all the way i think that the song definitely has copped an unfair amount of flack and i know that there were some people (laughs) who wrote on the love that album page i think maybe about two thirds of them said what the hell including your husband i think he said that maybe apart from demolition man off ghost in the machine this is the police's worst song ben 
wrong. Okay. Um, wrong. He, I think he said that he he floats between the two extremes, but but yeah, he's wrong. <laughs> yeah, he he's definitely wrong. And you know the the nice thing is he's not in the room now, so he can scream all he likes at his podcast listening device. You know, presuming he listens to the show, and I won't get to hear it. And if he tells you, exactly. I, I don't want to know. I think a lot of people who were listening to the album they thought synchronicity is about every breath you take or King of Pain, all these pop singles and <laughs> their melodicism. And this is uh, Andy Summers saying, hang on, stingy boy. Let's have, exactly. a, let's have a little bit of a laugh. It's a 7-4, 12-bar blues with Middle Eastern scales. It, I, yep. just, I, I love it. It sounds like the sort of thing that you'd hear in a Middle Eastern bazaar. And Andy Summers just going frantic, not because his mother is calling him, but I think he's truly scared about what he feels about his mother. And I just, oh, yeah. I just find this, yeah, like like you, I just find it incredibly funny. It's I, funny. I never skip this. In fact, I often play it a second time before moving on to the next cut. And there's just something about the way he's just like, ah! Like the screams are just, to <laughs> me, it's just so, I have a story about this song too. Okay, so in the 90s, I worked at a natural health food grocery store in Boulder, Colorado, where everything really hippie and they were so progressive they let the cash like I, was, I was a cashier so they let the cashiers pick the music like hey if you have an album bring in the cd and we'll play it for the store mm-hmm. um so i brought in i brought in synchronicity one day and you can guess what happened when mother came on i'm just ringing people up and swiping groceries through the checkout line and scanning and everything's all good and all of a sudden mother comes on i was like oh i forgot that the song's on the album too <laughs> and you hear the opening so you hear like eight measures and then you, you just hear silence like if, if you could if you could have heard a record scratch you know um, <laughs> would have heard that but you just hear complete silence and it was like a deafening silence the whole store like everything just like everything was just silent and slow motion for a minute and it's really jarring when there's nothing on in the grocery store yeah I, they gave me that album back that day they're like oh you know they can't finish the album. I said, don't bring this in again don't bring it in again yeah so i got taken to task for that but it was worth it you know to hear the first eight eight bars or whatever and it's nice to sort of think that not quite to this extreme but this was andy summers saying you know when this police gig is over this is where (laughs) i'm musically headed i'm doing something a little bit more adventurous and maybe in a way you can sort of say this is something where Stuart copeland was headed because he was doing things with i guess what they deem world music you know that Stuart copeland probably loved putting the song on the album too so i think anything to keep it from being the sting show right i think it was just like (laughs) yeah just that chaotic sound and just yeah you're right the middle eastern strains of something they would hear in a bazaar you know just like what it's crazy yeah but yeah norman bates uh theme song wonderful (laughs) i'll live with that yes glad to know that we're together on this one years before if you think about it you're going to John Lennon, his first album post the breakup of the Beatles, the uh, the Plastic Ono Band, and that's often known as the Yarnov Scream Therapy album. So, oh, yeah. for those out there who don't know, so Arthur Yarnov, I think he was a psychiatrist who sort of preached get to your inner child, sit in a room. If you've got all this angst, just scream it out. And that's what Lennon did. And he had, funnily enough, the song Mother. When they're going into the coda, he's singing, Mother, don't go! (laughs) 
And there are songs which he did that to an even greater extent. It's not exactly a Freudian song, but with the screaming and what's going on there, I'd be interested to know if even in a small way, Andy Summers had any influence from that John Lennon song. Because musically, it's sure. a, million, a million miles away. A million miles away. <laughs> but I wonder if even you know, there's, there's a synchronicity, small time connection between the two and whether the, yeah, I can get away with a little bit of screaming on this. Ah, mother, 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 mother. <laughs> I think so. You know, I think there's a lot of psychology going on behind the primal scream therapy feeling. It's just a very intuitive thing to do. You know, like when you're thinking of like how you were, especially if you were a baby and you're crying and, right. you know, it's just ah, like, it's just it's something you feel like you would instinctively do. So I think they were both of the same mind. All right. Let's go to the fifth song on the album. This is the sole Stuart Copeland song on the album called Miss Gradenko. I saw on the internet that a lot of people don't like the sun. I don't think it's deserving of that kind of hatred towards it, but man, people don't really don't like that song. I actually do like it, but how do you feel? I feel it's the toilet break song. It's not It's not the sort of song that you can hate. I don't hate any song on this album, but this is the sort of song that you sort of think, this is the filler song, and this is nothing on Stuart Copeland as a songwriter. I mean, look, like in The Police, he had maybe, you know, a 50-50 track record. Like, his song on any other day from Regatta de Blanc is a funny song it's melodically great and does everyone stare I adore both of those songs they're fantastic and yet he also has songs like Contact and I think he might have also written Bombs Away which are both neither here nor there but you know he wrote the, the songs that I mentioned before and he wrote The Other Side of Stopping from Zenyatta Mondana sure. uh, which you know, was musically great and it showed that he was a great tunesmith a great songwriter and I'm not even sort of like going into solo territory here as to what he was capable of but just within the police's catalogue and really when you think about it like the early songs with Henry Padovani like Fallout those early two or three songs they're Stuart Copeland compositions so he before Sting sort of decided right okay I'm going to take over this gig but Stuart Copeland started the band <laughs> and he was the original songwriter but so yeah look this song to me is it's okay it's you know I can't hate it there's nothing to hate about it but it does seem to be the odd duck out in, in a way yeah it is I mean it, to me this is a more angular song than maybe the others um, and it's a little bit more new wave in its structure right. in, the, in the songwriting and the subject especially because it's all about this like weird secrecy in this corporation and to me it's a very visual song and yes. I really like I mean I, I like the way the chorus plays out uh, rephrasing a sentence and then saying it again in a different way Are you To me, it seems very new wave. I like it for illiteracy and just alliteration mm. and, and the rhythmic patterns within. So I'm, I'm just looking at it from like a, a more sonic standpoint of sure. like how the rhythm sounds when you sing it. Uh, so maybe just for that, like to me, it's I feel like there's so much behind it. Like, what is it really saying? Like, what is who is this Miss Gradenko? Like, what, this is a mystery. And, and I hope that she's OK. I really do. You know, like, uh, Maybe it's set in an Orwellian world. We can't be having this secret love affair 
Yeah. But, but you know, it's, it's the sort of song that I think is too slight to read too much into it. <laughs> what, but I what, like what, to read into it. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. That's, that's fair. I mean, that's what this show is all about. But maybe because I never found it musically so interesting. I think one thing I will say that I really do like about it is you mentioned before about, you know, the arpeggiated uh, Andy Summers guitar lines and him da 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 It's yeah. a beautiful finger picking sort of style that he's playing on this, and it sounds like he is going through an acoustic, but I'm not sure what effects pedals he's yeah, using. But it does sound like an acoustic guitar, which is something that I don't think he usually did within the Police. But it's it's once again coming back to that thing about him making a different sound from anything else that you hear on the album. So I, I just love it. You know, it, you know, yeah. it's Andy Summers from his adventurousness rather than from the sonic aspect of it. It's his imagination. I want to say that the Andy Summers guitar line in the song is almost like that's Miss Gridenko because you hear this like bubbling under sort of aliveness to it. Sure, um, sure. And colorfulness. But then, you know, you hear the narrator saying, you know, like actually talking to her. So you're part of the structure, part of the regime, but you're trying to speak to this person who's actually, you know, a, a human being. Maybe the, that guitar is the human element in that song. Right. All right, let's move on to the next few songs, which have probably been played more on Golden Oldies Radio than just about anything that you can think of from <laughs> from the era. In some ways, it's going to be really hard to sort of discuss these songs because they're also part of our consciousness. Everyone's got an opinion. Where can we go with this? But that's the purpose of this show. Let's give it a crack. Synchronicity 2. As I said earlier on, if Synchronicity 1 is Sting's attempt to explain what Jung's principle is, then this song is here's an example. Here's one that we prepared earlier. And you can sort of almost imagine Rod Serling introducing an episode <laughs> of The Twilight Zone. Another suburban family morning. Oh, yeah. They're caught in the it's twilight. Another. <laughs> they're, they're caught in the twilight zone. Picture this. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> I've had a big thing over the years about songwriters who write songs about the so-called blandness of living in the suburbs. And I've got to say that probably life in the suburbs as the American definition is sort of different, a little bit similar, but sort of different to the Australian experience because I know a lot of people live in what you call the city here. Just about everyone who lives in a major city lives in the suburbs. The city is what we call the central sure. business district. So life in the suburbs, as described there, is somewhat different. But even let's, notwithstanding being pedantic about that, you've got you know, songwriters like Ben Folds and songs by the Monkees and Fountains of Wayne and even the police before on songs like you know, what I said before about On Any Other Day that talk about the blandness of the suburbs. And here we have a song where this guy's life his family is giving him grief grandmother screaming things out to the world um <laughs> rice krispies every day is just like any other day and he's going to explode and meanwhile thousands of miles away 
the Loch Ness monster is preparing to come to the surface. Are there any songs that say, hey, the suburbs are okay? Because face it, the songwriters who sell millions of records rely on them to be purchased by kids from the suburbs. You know, that's a good question. And I feel like now I want to make it my assignment to actually write a song that says, like, you know, just like, even if it's just a fake assignment, like, oh, the suburbs are okay. But yeah, I love the way this song paints a picture of turmoil and anger and sadness and just depression and, and uprising and protest. And you can't, like, you scream into this void, like you scream and nobody's listening. Like, right. just, it's an amazing song and there's so much sadness to it. And um, honestly, I think it's probably the saddest song about the suburbs that I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, only second to Pleasant Valley Sunday, which I I think is incredibly sad like i listen to that and i just feel just a pain in my heart to listen to it yes uh, um just I, I don't know what it is and even the the carol king version is even more sad <laughs> but it's incredible that it got played on the radio because then when you start to really listen to the lyrics my god <laughs> it's just this life is just a shambles and you're like oh my god this is a life that so many people are living <laughs> you gotta sort of wonder i mean overall who were the police writing their songs for because you, you talk about it's amazing that this song got played on the radio and yet songs that have been played on the radio were about suicide songs about prostitution songs mm -hmm. about stalking and we're not even talking about every breath you take because he'd done stalking before songs about a, a school teacher having feelings for his 15 year old student so he'd gone and written a lot of stuff which thematically, not necessarily always lyrically, but thematically, had pushed the edge as to what you could play on radio. So writing a song about a guy who's going to snap someday and do something that's unfortunately all too relevant again in 2018 yeah. is not necessarily pushing the boundaries for the police back in the day because they'd pushed a few boundaries. Uh, the Boomtown Rats of the day had gone and written I Don't Like Mondays. Oh, yeah. Maybe people just weren't listening to the lyrics. And I like to think that a lot of police fans were not necessarily listening in that depth to the lyric. They were singing along Roxanne without necessarily yeah, yeah. thinking about what it was that Sting was was writing about. So they got away with a lot. And I'm just sort of wondering, like, day one, who are they aiming the songs at? And this is just another example of that. Yeah, and who were who they aiming at? But then who ultimately was their audience? Well, then they definitely felt a resonance with the lyrics because I think that police fans really did listen to the lyrics. You know, let's face it, the, lyric, the lyrics are a, a good draw for why you would like this band. I mean, I, I just don't remember as a 10-year-old uh, really listening to the lyrics on the radio. But then as I got older, I started to understand, you know, what they were singing about. Right. So. As a 10-year-old, you probably couldn't have understood what the underlying substance of what was happening here. You might have thought, hang on, what's this monster got to do with this guy having a shit day? It's it's not, yeah. until, not until you're older that you sort of understand about maybe your frustrating domestic house life. And right. The Loch Ness Monster was because of the pollution pollutants that were dumped into the waters and so <laughs> yeah that, that works that absolutely works too i mean on on the one hand that seems like a very direct link going on the jung theory of something mm -hmm. which appears to have no connection you make a connection yeah. by by saying right well this guy his tension is rising to the surface and somewhere thousands of miles away 
a mythical monster is about to finally show his head and do some damage just like this guy is about to raise his head and do some damage that people don't expect him to do so that's more in keeping in line with Sting's Carl yeah. Jung I'm going to show how clever and how well read I am but <laughs> I think that this song for me is probably the best composed song on the album and I want your opinion as oh, yeah. a songwriter here because a lot of the songs that the police did were riff based and apart from maybe going to the riff to the chorus you sort of knew where it was that they were headed whereas structurally this is more of a composition where the music like you get that major key that starts off with the verse where he's singing about this guy in the suburbs and then the tension is ratcheted up a little bit when he goes from the major key to the slight minor key at the end of the verse. Mm. And then he goes yeah. to the minor key where it's getting really nasty and tense. Many miles away, something crawls to the surface. And you've got these three parts. And we're not even sort of counting about the bridge, the solo guitar bridge. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, the, that where cra- he does the crazy, different. yeah, just the power chords just going up and up and up. Um, and you can feel it rising. But yes, I, I just agree. Like just in the, just song structure wise, you know, it's a basic. It's like an A B A B A B. Then C. Like the the bridge comes at the at the end. The, I think again with Copeland's frenetic drumming, that crazy. There's like a, that siren that goes off at the beginning, and I love Andy Summers' guitar again on this. The na na na. There's something about that. It, it makes my heart ache when I hear that. There's something about just those two simple notes, right? I don't know what it is. Is, but it just really hits me at heart. <laughs> but I think the lyrics just really paint this, this gray scenario and you just feel like you're never going to get out of it. And I think it's fantastic songwriting. This is one of my favorites. What do you think about the film clip? Have you seen the film clip for this? Oh, the, the music video? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, I just watched it today. It's perfect for, for the song. I love that they're all standing on their different towers. So this is actually, you know, their, their dynamic, what it has come to. If you watch earlier music videos, videos from the band they're all hanging all over each other they got their arms around each other they're all like in very close quarters like in message in the bottle they're just in a green room you know playing just for their gig yep very you know like all just you know playing around in the air in this sun they're all in their separate towers all in their own little worlds basically um and at one point Stuart copeland's little tower catches fire and they keep rolling yes so i i tried looking like where's the fire and i see a lot of smoke i'm not sure what i what i'm seeing but it's just a, a Total chaos in that video. It works for me. I'm wondering whether Mad Max was all pervasive at the time because I had this dystopian future sort of look, the, the clothes. I think my friend Tim put up a post saying more colors of Benetton than Mad Max. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we must have been feeling in the, uh, in the Reagan era, must have been feeling yeah. very depressed and very uncertain of our future. So three rock stars playing dystopia in, uh, in their yep. film clip. I mean, look, I, I believe the film clip, if I recall correctly, had been directed by Godley and Cream. So oh, I Godley what, and Cream. Yeah, okay. actually, I believe Godley and Cream directed all the video clips from Ghost in the Machine onwards. So I wonder if that's their idea. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm sure it was. They were they were pretty much masterminds when it came to what they wanted uh, for the music videos. They were very creative. <laughs> All right, let's move on to what would be side two of the album. Let's see if we can plow our way through these because everyone already knows these songs. Track one of side two or track seven of the CD, which whichever way you choose to listen to this record. And it's the song which for many years was seen as being the most misunderstood song on the album. I'm trying 
trying to think when there was a time where people would play this song at a wedding, but every breath you take. Every breath you take and every move you make Every bond you break Every step you take I'll be watching you Every single day And every word you say mistook that as being a romantic song. Why would you think it's romantic to have someone say, whatever it is that you're doing, I'll be watching you. It's not, I'll be looking after you. It's, I'm watching you. Yeah, if you want to get frustrated, just look at the YouTube comments on that music video and see everybody is like, this is my wedding song. I love this song. It reminds me of when I fell in love. And you're just like, no, oh my gosh. You have no idea. I mean. You and Ben didn't have this song at your wedding? Oh, are you kidding? No. <laughs> no, so it's, it's all about obsession and, and control, and maybe for some people that's what love is, but maybe that's why it's so misunderstood. Maybe people really feel like they can't differentiate between that. Like maybe they're in love with somebody that stalks them. Once they have that sort of control over them, and maybe that's where the confusion comes in. I don't know. <laughs> I remember reading an interview with Sting, or maybe he said it in the film Bring on the Night during the Dream of the Blue Turtles phase that he wrote If You Love Someone, Set Them Free as an answer to every breath you take and indeed every little thing she does is magic because he said people didn't get the point. So he said, all right, I'm going to be clear. If you love someone, don't control them. (laughs) It was like seeing order himself to do a PSA. It was like the government said, you know what, you're making, you're, yeah, you're giving people the wrong message. You, you have this public service announcement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I mean, the music, it's te- it is telling you something. Although it's, you know, I would have to say that there's a little bit of word painting in the music too, because of the tenacity of that, that middle C, I think it's C that's written in, or that it was recorded in, but you hear that piano, which is you Pageant's idea to hit that, that C like a hammer and just keep sustaining throughout right. on the bridge, especially. But you do hear a little bit of like, I'm not going to let this go. Like you're, you know, this is, you're dying and, and you got to deal with it. <laughs> I'm a great believer that Sting sort of made stalkerish songs. A regular thing about what he did, even like in his, even in his solo career. And of course, now that I'm talking about it, I can't remember specifics, but I do know that a few years ago, I spoke about his album, Ten Sumner's Tales. And there were a couple of songs on that album that I recall at the time seemed to me to be fairly stalkerish. And, but if you sort of think like going back through the police's back catalogue, maybe um, Next to You could be seen as being something of a sure. s- stalkerish song. Yeah, and that's got more of a frustrated feel to it. This one's more just determination. And I have blinders on. I'm not seeing anything but you. Yeah, in a way, this is maybe more scary, more nasty than that song is. Sure, yeah. The quieter it is, the more sinister it is. Yeah, it's scary. Like, when they go into that B section, <laughs> it's pretty explosive. Mm. Uh, just <laughs> and, and the fact that it never does... Exp- well, I guess with the Since You've Gone, I've Been Lost Without a Trace does change the dynamic a little bit. But it it never sort of like fully explodes and it's probably all the better and all the more tense for that. I remember when this came out as a single, I don't know how many months 
or weeks before the album came out and I remember thinking wow this sounds like nothing that they've put out till now but I loved it right from the outset yeah. I, thought, I love the fact it's this nasty little four chord song which was something love- that they hadn't really sort of done before and Stuart Copeland apparently came to blows with Sting for him saying I just want a song with a backbeat um, just do it oh. keep keep it simple you were saying before that he said to Andy Summers do what you want but he said to Stuart Copeland no this is very definitely what I want so actually it's funny that you mentioned that Sting wanted the backbeat to be the thing that Stuart Copeland is doing on that song because that pickup beat that starts off the song is probably my favorite moment of that song right yeah look, I mean I think it completely works for what he did so Sting had it's hard to say the correct vision because you know every vision is subjective but it worked it really seemed like it worked and trying to keep a leash a muzzle on Stuart Copeland was probably like keeping it on Animal from the Muppets I think it's probably the only time to make a comparison between Animal and Stuart Copeland well, yeah, there's uh, a lot of control in that one Sting as of 2003 I read that that he was still raking in $2,000 a day in that song. Oh, my goodness. So even if he said, right, I'm not getting any money from any other song I've ever done, he'd be set for life with He'd with be that set song. for life. And, yeah, and that's because, you know, it was it had been used in some, in some other songs, like I'll Be Missing You. So I think that the sample, was, <laughs> since it was used in that other song, really helped the royalties come in, too. <laughs> and plus the fact that he's probably getting paid every time it's played at a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why should those people miss out? Maybe they can sort of get these played at divorce parties, if that's a thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Breakup parties, control people. (laughs) All right, look, let's move on to the next ubiquitous song from this album. This is King of Pain. There's a little black spot on the sun today. that correlation with the there's a little black spot on the sun today do you feel like maybe he knew and studied like solar flares and, and like sunstorms and like sunspots and the story that I'd read was he was with his new wife and he'd said something to her he was like sitting out in the garden in a blue funk and he said something like oh well there's a little black spot on the sun today that's uh, just like it was yesterday and she said geez you're the king of pain now if she'd (laughs) gone and said something well you're mr cheery pants then (laughs) there might not have been a song or it might have been a very more different song so no idea whether it was just him being you know a depressed funky monkey i've no idea but what were you hypothesizing i've always um learned that solar storms came in cycles of like 11 years and that they usually coincide with wars and other terrible things that happen in the universe. And in my own life, I not recently, but I feel like in the past, 
I've had weird cycles that seem to have coincided with solar flares. And so I, I really studied it because I think it, it coincided with the Gulf War. And then again, like in 2001, I feel like there's a really big connection with the energy, uh, the magnetic field of the sun. Apparently it does have an effect on human behavior and moods. And people are more likely to get depressed around times of solar storms, commit suicide, uh, and just have really weird, funky behavior around those times. And so I'm wondering if maybe he picked up on that and like, just like, does his brain know that there were there were sunspots in that day? And right. I, I don't know. It just it makes me wonder. Like maybe uh, subconsciously he knew about that, and then of course Trudy helped him out with the lyrics. Awesome, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a great title, "The King of Pain." Yeah. Um, I mean, look, it's not the first time, though, that he'd gone and written songs from a very pessimistic standpoint. If you sort of go back to Message in a Bottle, the whole notion there about people together being so alone. But yeah. I guess this is a lot more personal. Message in a Bottle is making an observation about us as mankind and probably more relevant than it ever was. You know, thousands of people connected on Facebook and mobile phones, and yet we're also very isolated. But uh, King of Pain was definitely his personal feel this is how i am oh i've noticed this but that's my soul up there yeah and, and this is one of those songs that I, I sort of classify as a list song i mean not maybe necessarily in the same way like we didn't start the fire by billy joel but this is definitely a list song there's a fossil that's trapped in a high cliff wall there's a dead salmon frozen in a waterfall there's a blue whale beached by a springtime ebb there's a butterfly trapped in a spider's web. And oh, yeah, I love that line. That, I mean, and I think that that's really poetic. I really like yeah. how he's gone and comprised those lines, but it's that list song. And I, I was just sort of thinking today, I mean, that might be something, a future list for Ben Eisen on all-time top 10, all-time top 10 songs that are lists. Yes, you know how he loves his list. And it all starts off with a little black spot on the sun. And in a way, maybe this could be called Synchronicity 3 because that black spot on the sun has linked to all these terrible events that Mother Nature is doing all these terrible things to its creatures. So anyway, that's... Yeah, and you know what I just thought of is that? that, you know how when he sings, that's my soul up there? Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's a chorus of stings and it's almost like a, a collective unconsciousness of people um, all saying that at the same time. Right. It's just so like disembodied voice. So it's synchronicity from the perspective that lots of people are saying that at the same time as yeah. you pointed out. but also this terrible thing has happened to me i've observed this and meanwhile somewhere else in the world these terrible things are happening to the animals on mother nature's earth but which sounds yeah. all very, very earnest i'm just interpreting what sting's saying as a song this and the next one were never amongst my favorites i mean i respect them obviously and they're well-structured pop songs but this is probably an area where i sort of think yeah this is a long way from Roxanne mm-hmm. from Message in a Bottle from Don't Stand So sure. Close to Me and that's not a problem in, unto itself because I admire and respect development but I think that he's maybe sort of going more insular and he has said that these songs were less about Stuart and Andy's artistic or musical contributions and I think that if he'd said how do you think we should approach this they may have ended up very differently I don't know just my yeah own. it's definitely a soft rock feel yes you know and easy listening and it's almost a sting solo post uh, police effort almost oh let's start the conversation about wrapped around your finger you can't see- 
I just wanted to look up the literary references in that. Caught between the Scylla and Charybdis. Yes, which I didn't know what that meant until I, you know, for years I'd just gone and listened to the song thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So did you actually know what that was referring to? No, I don't. But <laughs> well, Okay, so it's, it comes down to Greek mythology. I mean, like, if Sting had been... Uh, less, I don't know, well, do I want to say pretentious? He would have said caught between rock and a hard place. So Scylla and Charybdis were two sea rock monsters. And so the story goes about, I can't remember who it was, Uh, it was traveling on his ship and he was caught between these two rocks. And if he steered the ship one way, then a good chunk of his crew were going to die. They're going to get caught on the rocks, but they might make it through. And if they went towards the other rock monster, they're going to get caught in a sea whirlpool and then they'd all die. So hence, okay. caught between the rock and the hard place. But of course, sure. it's more literary to say caught between Scylla and Charybdis. It's Sting wanted to show, more... I'm very well read. <laughs> much more colorful way of saying between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> right, right. That's really beautiful. Yeah, the song is very soft sounding, but Sting really puts that twist on the end, which makes it an interesting song on when you find your servant is your master. Mm-hmm. I did read that Andy Summers was just totally, he was not into this song or video. Right. Did you read the I Want My MTV book? No, I did not. I, I, I'm aware of it though, but no, I haven't read it. And Andy Summers said in that book, he said, I've never been much of a fan of that song actually. Sting got to shoot his part last in that video and made a meal of knocking all the candles out. Fuck him. (laughs) (laughs) And so today I watched that video and oh yeah, you can see Sting just kind of prancing around just like having a grand old time just knocking out those candles. But If you can just sort of imagine a rock biopic or even if it's you know something fictitious you can just imagine like a story about a band that came from the suburbs and they played just for the fun of it and then they became the big thing in the world and they're all on board and looking after each other and then one member of the band just took a little bit too much cocaine and felt distance from the rest of the band and then they were making film clips where they all get dressed in white and one of them knocks over a million candles because it's symbolic of something. And the exactly. other two saying, what the hell is going on? This is a long way from so where we start. This is that moment. <laughs> this, is, this is completely that moment. And yeah, look, I'm like uh, Andy on this. It was never a song I felt particularly drawn toward. This, this is the thing. Synchronicity overall, I think, is a great album. For my money, Regatta de Blanc is the police masterpiece. And we should probably sort of just briefly address the whole notion that there are some people who say the police were a singles band. People have often gone and said, yeah, they made great singles, but the albums were full of filler. And whilst I don't disagree that there were songs that were filler, I think that overall synchronicity, even with songs like this, which aren't necessarily fully my bag, but I understand why others love them, and I think this is a great album. And I think the earlier albums are also great albums, even if they're not always fulfilling Sting's vision, because Stuart Copeland was a good songwriter, and Andy Summers had his contributions, and they work. The others are writing songs that are different from the three or four minute melodic pop hit that Sting was necessarily coming out with. But they fulfilled great songs in their way, and they were great collections of songs. I thought they were 
good albums. Yeah, I think it works on both levels. So I would argue that they are a singles band because people that don't care to delve into the rest of their catalog, yes. they'll be very happy listening to the meat and potatoes of the hits that came out on the radio. And they have so many of them and they're all so good. So I would say that they are a singles band. But for those that want to dive deeper, like what I've had to do, because I didn't know all the songs separately on each album until later when I started buying the CDs, you know, when I was much older, because um, mm-hmm. I didn't buy them as a 10 year old. I was just listening to the radio <laughs> or whatever. Right. So I feel like on one level, they do work as a singles band, but you will discover so much more by listening to each album and sort of getting an idea of the balance of the band and just a uh, dynamic and where it takes you on that journey. So it is fun to listen to like the you know synchronicity one and then i like musical theater a lot and so (laughs) i like anything that has that structure and you can just go through this the through line and see if it's a concept album which this kind of is you know because i don't think we actually we talked about that the songs even though it's through line is like the carl jung theory the songs were all inspired by arthur kessler's book the roots of coincidence yes i I had read that yes um yeah i do i do think that they are a single band but they also offer more if you want to look further yeah fair point all right so let's go now to if you had the record they're not vinyls kids they're records you've got the, the, the final song on the record version of synchronicity is tea in the sahara the final song on the <laughs> cd version is we'll get to that in a moment but uh tea in the sahara If our minds are deranged Please don't ask us why Beneath the sheltering sky We have this strange obsession You have the means in your possession Seeing the Sahara with you Seeing the Sahara with you after the frantic pace that the album starts with on Synchronicity 1, it could be viewed in some ways as anticlimactic, that the energy has run out, something that really never happened on any other Police album. For my money, though, I think that this is an absolute perfect ending for the album. Once again, Sting has gone literary, drawing inspiration, I think, from a book called The Sheltering Sky, and I was determined I was going to watch the movie, at least because I didn't have the time to, uh, to read the yeah. book. Apparently, like it's based on a chapter of the book, but I think it sort of works without any, any sort of literary illusions. But for ages, I just sort of thought, it's this bizarre song. What did it mean? You know, these women in the desert and wanting to have tea in the Sahara. And I got to tell mm-hmm. you, I, I read an interpretation of the song, which I thought I really liked. So I'll share that. And sure. someone had gone and put out the notion that the song sort of works like a religious allegory. And these okay. women are praying to God or the deity of your choice and saying, we will do what you need. So in this song, they dance for his pleasure as a replacement for prayer. And they say, well, we'll be here every year to do this for you. And what we want is your attention. We want to have tea in the Sahara with you. But, you know, replace that for prayer and asking for whatever it is that you want from life, be it healthy family, to be successful, have a great job, whatever it is that you might want. And yet at the end of the song, the sisters would burn because he never came back. And the religious allegory is that people 
they might pray and they never see any parting of the Red Sea. They never yeah. they never see a second coming, whatever illusion you might come to. And that completely works for me. I mean, some, you, you might come up with a better one, but I really like that interpretation. And on the other hand, it might just be Sting took a few magic mushrooms and just <laughs> came up with this great story in its own line. But I really like that. Yeah, there's something about the ritual in the song and... You're like, uh, what are they waiting for? Like, like it's uh, like broken dreams, or is it just, uh, who, who knows? But yeah, there's so much mystery in it. And I know that the police had gone on that um, world tour where they were going to parts of the world where bands were previously not allowed to go. Yes. And I believe that they were in the, were they in the Sahara? Oh, I don't know. I feel like Stuart Copeland would have certainly done something in that line post-police, but would have gone to the, yeah. I don't know about the band itself. There's some film that came out, and I did not watch it but I saw that it was put out I think by the BBC Mm -hmm. um, where they filmed their tour and I feel like um, I saw a little bit of footage of them like riding through a desert on a camel (laughs) so I'm like I wonder if like there was just this desire to yeah there's something there that was really close to their like they they have a lot of uh, Middle Eastern overtones and you know some of their other songs and so they really were into the world music scene and just think about it because Stuart Copeland actually grew up in Lebanon Oh, did he? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His father was an American diplomat and was placed all around the place. And so he spent a lot of his formative years growing up in Lebanon. So a lot of his drumming style comes from focusing on Middle Eastern drumming techniques and why, you know, he, you put a jambe in front of him and he'll know what to do. Oh, that's so, so cool. That comes as absolutely no surprise to me. And, I, and think of that song, Behind My Camel, which admittedly is, I think, written yeah. by Andy Summers. But once again, the Middle Eastern feel. <laughs> his mother so yeah so they had interests beyond three chord four chord pop songs with nothing wrong with that but they were looking towards a whole bunch of places sure but yeah but Stuart Copeland had a very definite connection to uh, Middle Eastern sounds wow and and speaking of Stuart I love once again the sparseness on this song you got this great bass riff that Sting is playing You have Stuart barely touching, if at all. Oh, no, he, he plays the snare drum on the chorus, but through the verses, no snare drum. It's just him, the hi-hat, and the bass. And he's not afraid to do that. Other drummers would feel, oh, the listener won't like that. They'll be bored. They'll be wondering what's happened. And Stuart Copeland never felt that way. In fact, he said, let's see how long I can go without having to play yeah. the snare drum. And yeah. it just so completely works. And you get this shimmering effect from Andy Summer. And he's a guitar hero, but he's not the oh, sort of guitar yeah. <laughs> hero who plays millions of notes. Let's see what sound I can come out with. But he's one of the greatest unsung heroes. Everyone sort of knows him for his role in this pop band. But really, I think he's a guitarist's guitarist, just an amazing player. And this song is part of the reason why he does it. Not because he's trying to play like Eddie Van Halen, but because he's getting sent out of his guitar that Eddie Van Halen would never go for, would never, would oh, never yeah. picture. And this song is a great example of it. Yeah, I think um, in the choruses especially, I love the guitar. With you. 
I yeah. love it. Like so far away and just beautiful. Just, mm. And it's it's that shimmering effect. You listen to that and you think, yes, this is the desert. This is what makes Andy and Stuart such perfect accompanists or perfect sure. band members for Sting's songs because they listen to the lyrics. They say, what is going on here with the words? A lot of musicians, I don't think, do that. But they always said, what is he writing about here? Okay, well, what musically is appropriate for this lyric? Yeah, I don't they know how to serve think. the song. They do, they do. And those are my favorite musicians, the ones who serve the song. They play fewer notes, but they get something make, really, really expressive. Yeah, make bold choices, are able to end an album on a very sort of quiet note. Yep. Another album that I could compare that came out maybe only a year later was Joe Jackson's Night and Day album, where he had mm. a side that was more dance-oriented and a side that was more contemplative. And sure. that might sort of apply for him. I mean, not that the first side is necessarily songs that you wouldn't think that you couldn't contemplate to, but it's a little bit more frantic and... The second side is a little bit more pulled back musically. It, mm-hmm, it, goes, right. it goes to places that you wouldn't necessarily think the police would absolutely go to. But It's like a nice little nightcap. Like When you think of this song, it's almost like, here, let's tell a story, a bedtime story. Or, you yes. know, it's like, it's like have, let's have a, you know, like a, a drink and just think about, like, it's like a bedtime story. Right. Maybe a bedtime nightmare, though. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, don't necessarily go to sleep and think that you're going to burn or that you're going to be lost in the <laughs> desert, but you know, all you're waiting for is a cup of tea with some unknown figure. So. Right, but it does get your imagination going. Like, I guess not all bedtime stories are have a happy ending. Maybe, maybe they're supposed to. I don't know. I, I should not be writing children's bedtime stories. That's for sure. Let's talk about the final song on the CD. This was on record in terms of being the B side of the Every Breath You Take seven-inch single, but as far as album goes, this only appeared on the CD. And this is back in the days where they wanted people to buy CDs rather than records, and haven't those times changed? They said, right, we'll give you an extra song if you spend some more coin on a CD. Nowadays is, well, we'll get you to spend more money on a record than on a CD. I don't know if they'll put on an extra song or not on the uh, new pressings of records, but this is Murder by Numbers. Once that you've decided on a killing First you make a stone of your heart And if you find that your hands are still willing Then you can turn a murder into art There really isn't any for bloodshed You just do it with a little more finesse this is a nasty little song and i gotta say i absolutely love it this was yeah. a andy summers and sting collaboration so i think andy came in with the melody already written but he asked Sting, well, can you go away and write the lyric? Which sort of surprised me because lyric-wise, it's so nasty and blackly comic. I thought that this is perfect fodder for the sort of stuff that Andy writes. I didn't know the song until the late 90s when I finally got the, the full album. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I've always liked the song and I, I always thought it was very, I thought it was clever, you know, and just, just this like bragging of just... <laughs> 
you know, like a dictator who's just able to just kill people so easily, and this is how you do it, and just it still seems so relevant today. Yes, you know? I think I mentioned to you during a, a typed conversation that we had during the week. This song brought in mind a Hitchcock film, and this is the second Hitchcock reference, first with Mother and Psycho, and this one reminded me of a film that had James Stewart and Farley Granger, and the film was called Rope. Now, I don't think this is one of Hitchcock's better films, but the story behind that was there are these two guys who live in an apartment together and they lure someone to their apartment and just as the opening shot of the film post opening credits is of one of them strangling another person so we're not even talking about making their way so the first thing you see is someone strangling another person and you're thinking wow what's happening here what's the story behind that and then you realize what he's doing is he's basically sort of saying well i'm trying this as an experiment and you know we're entitled to do it because we're the illustrious we're the leaders of the line and you know we can do this and we're going to have we're going to leave this body in the apartment we're uh, having a party inviting our favorite university lecturer and we're just going to see if we, anything that we say any clues that we give him see how clever he is and if he can find the body so this whole notion in this song of i don't necessarily see it as bragging about how to murder but it's just more matter-of-factly you know well you know people like us you know we're the leaders of the line and you know murder by numbers yeah you want to you want to slip a tablet into someone's coffee it's easy off. yeah you it's can, just really easy just just go do it musically this had the sparse sound of the nigel gray period sure. I, I think this yeah. could have fitted in on um, any of those early albums i love this i sort of think in a way it doesn't belong on synchronicity it was a good thing that it didn't end up on the record because i do think that tea in the sahara is a great finish make no mistake i love murder by numbers as a song but <laughs> it doesn't belong as the closing it, song if you look at the album as a package yeah yeah i can see that i mean but i i do i see like this song is being like a sociopathic way to like bring it all around to the synchronicity theory of just like, oh, well, maybe, you know, like this, this killing is happening somewhere, some part of the world, but then you know, all these other things are still happening. So all these are different events that are mm-hmm. at, at play all within, you know, the same framework. I mean, so maybe it could work, but I'm just trying to make it work in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, fair enough. I, I would have liked to have heard it if it was going to be on synchronicity maybe it should have been earlier on and in a way i hadn't mentioned this before but i sort of thought i would have liked it if maybe for a greater dynamic story a bit of a roller coaster if they would have mixed the songs up a bit more because as it, you know, you've got all these songs on side two which are sort of closing yeah. down the album i would have liked it maybe if they'd gone from oh my god to i don't know king of pain and then come up again with something weird like mother and then gone down again to wrapped around your finger i don't know but this song should have been elsewhere on the album but then again i guess given that it was considered like a bonus cut then the bonus thing was always seen as being at the end of the album yeah i mean i I agree i I think that this uh album suffers a little bit from the sequencing of it i feel like it could have been something i i feel like it was back loaded a little bit because every breath you take I feel like it's weird that they didn't put that in a different spot I feel like number seven is a weird spot for it <laughs> right right they're looking at it as you know, well side two we've yeah. just finished side one with this frantic synchronicity too right this is how we're going to start side two off and it's not unheard of to start side two of an album with something that's a little bit more restrained but then you sort of think for, especially for a band like the police that they're going to ramp it up straight afterwards and it just never happens not yeah. a crime because they're, they're good songs but yeah the sequencing I would have liked to have heard maybe a different order 
order of things, but you know, well, hell, I'm not selling millions and millions of records and having people come see me in concert. Millions of people come see me in concert every <laughs> night. So what do I know? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to figure out who it was who made it that sequence. Like, was it the band who decided that that was going to be the way it is? Or because if I was an A and R person, I would definitely have put every breath you take a lot higher on that list. Like maybe number three yep. or number four. Sure. And then I would have put Rapture on Your Finger. I probably would have put that at the beginning of Side Two or King of Pain. Sure. As long as you had something up tempo to follow it. I would have, yeah, I would have put Mother like down the list because I think that would it would have worked better as like a complete surprise. Like what? <laughs> It sort, of, it sort of seems like it's a bit of an afterthought to say, all right, we'll just put Stuart and Andy's songs together and oh, then the yeah. rest of the album is Sting, okay? Just suffer through this, you know, even if they'd had one song per side. So it seems more of a band contribution. Maybe, yeah. Look, the last thing I sort of want to say about Murder by Numbers is coming back to Stuart Copeland. Now, this song drove me crazy for years, trying to sort of work out what was a time signature. So Zali, I was sort of thinking about this and looking at video videos of drummers doing their thing and I saw one interpretation that got it partly right and I reckon that they're wrong about another part. The opening is definitely a 12-8 pattern. And Stuart Copeland is playing a cross stick on the rim of the snare drum. So he's doing this 12-8 and Sting is singing over it. But before the guitar comes in and the bass comes in, there's something, it just doesn't flow naturally unless there's like a bar of 3.8, which was suggested in this video that I'd seen from this drummer. So that, okay, that works because it doesn't sort of like go when he sings, you can turn a murder into art. And then the guitar comes in. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't yeah. actually sort of flow as continuous 12.8. So I reckon he's doing like a, a bar of something different, one bar, which is often a tricky thing. But where I saw in this video, which I think they got it wrong, is is they said that when it gets to the verse where Andy Summer starts playing, is it says, yeah, he's playing in 12-8. He's not. They're playing in 4-4, but he's playing, and I'm sorry to get, swing. I'm, I'm sorry to get nerdy. It, it, yes, swing, because it, it, it's yeah. all triplets. With the missing middle right. of the How could a, a, a drumming tuition site get that wrong? But yeah, it's yeah, that's weird. When you said twelve eight, I was like, wait. Uh. No, no, the, the opening is definitely twelve eight because they're not triplets. They're all yeah. sequences of eighth notes. That's compound time with a cross stick, you know, on on every second eighth. Stuart just sort of punctuating it with a bass drum beat wherever he felt like it, and. Once again, that great imagination. But the fact that he was able to sort of pull this out like it was nothing. I just have so much time and respect for him. And I don't know, this might be the podcast I've talked the most about the drummer than I think just about any the the possible exception. I can't remember what I said, but I imagine I said a lot about Keith Moon when Ben and I did Who's Next all those years ago. But yeah, Stuart is my hero in case I hadn't made that. Respect, yeah. So that way, I mean, you're definitely going to have to come out to LA because I'm sure he's He's going to have more operas that he'll be staging and, and you get to see him perform and 
Well, I'll be good. I just got to put out a petition to say, Stuart, come back out here. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, well, as you said, maybe I'll have to come to LA. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So any final thoughts that you want to say about this record, Shannon Hurley? I would just say that I think I, I just want to say that my favorite song is probably Synchronicity 2. Mm-hmm. I just also want to say that thank you for having me on this podcast because I was able to do so much research and I, like I told you off the air, my head has just been swimming with these beautiful sounds and lyrics and it's, it's making me so inspired and really de- dig even deeper into listening to, to the earlier police catalog. And um, so thank you so much. Oh, my absolute pleasure. I will not let 2018 kick me out the door until you've been back on the show again this year. And I know we only do <laughs> one episode per month, but we will get you back on again this year because I only do 12 shows a year at this. So yeah, to have you do at least one more, it has to be done. I definitely want you back because really two and a half years between drinks or whatever it's been. Uh, oh, I know. It's, it's, it's not right. I apologize. It's shameful. It's I, downright shameful. Damn, damn, damn. I, I, I apologize profusely. <laughs> Eric segment, an album I love. Eric, he's going to be talking about Ruts and their album, The Crack. We'll be back in a few minutes after Eric talks about Ruts. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want you, I want you, G4. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. This is Eric. I'm back with another album I love segment. This time around, I'm talking about an album called The Crack. The name of the band is Ruts. They were a late 70s UK punk band who were heavily influenced by reggae, and that's kind of why I picked them. Morris informed me he was going to be talking about The Police, and I thought White Boy Reggae, and I thought, hey, I got this Ruts album in the last year that um, I really dig, and it based on reggae, which should not be a shock to anybody. Reggae was a main influencer of punk rock. You talk to people that were there, or you read the accounts. And by the way, I recommend reading the ones that are more of oral history rather than one author giving their take on it. Oral history, for those who don't know, is when you have multiple people talking about the same experience so that you get each of their memories, each of their perspectives, and you can see what matches and what doesn't match. At any rate, I picked up this album because I saw it recommended maybe on an Amoeba, What's in My Bag, or Red Henry Rollins talking about it. I just think it was Henry Rollins talking about it. It's become one of those records that's just kind of lived in my stereo, or my car, more accurately. 
And I, aside from Babylon Burning, I couldn't tell you any of the songs because they all kind of are part of the experience of listening to the album. That's not to say that it's one long song that continuously drones over and over. It's more of the album as a whole has a flow and a cohesiveness that I find works better as a whole experience rather than this song followed by this song followed by this song. So let's see what kind of sounds this album has to offer. talk about reggae for a minute and I'm not talking about the Bob Marley dope smoking frat boy type reggae that I came to hate in the 1990s I'm talking about the actual Jamaican or imported to the UK by the original skinheads who were Jamaican reggae that was part and parcel of punk bands on America's west coast as well as in the UK Obviously, The Clash had a huge reggae influence. Not just reggae, they they pulled from world music. They pulled from the sounds they heard from the Middle East and from North America and from the Caribbean and probably a whole bunch of other places. Then you get bands like General Public or the English Beat or the Police who infused reggae into a more pop sensibility or more dance sensibility. And then there was the whole ska thing, which is part of reggae. You get the two-tone scene in the UK with the selector and the specials and, you know, just on and on and on. And then in America, you had bands like the Untouchables doing the same thing. And that's before the third wave ska that popped up in the 90s even was a thought. From an outside perspective, from a 2018 perspective... What becomes problematic is what we start calling cultural appropriation. 
where we start talking about a bunch of white punks who want to play music that is inspired or directly lifted from the minority groups around them. There's a couple things that often get lost in these discussions. The guitar, the main instrument of the rock band, is actually a Spanish instrument, mainly. The bass guitar is a derivation of the fiddle, which is found originally in mainly Irish folk music. The drum, of course, is uh, an instrument that was used by many cultures, including obviously African culture, but also the Native American culture. And if you go to Southeast Asia, you'll find a whole nother world of percussion instruments, of stringed instruments, of horns, of, of various sound-making devices. The form of music that would inform reggae, the popular song of the Western world, is in part folk ballads coming from various nations and countries and various ethnic groups, each of which were putting their own stamp on the sound with their style of playing, with their, their forms of music, their ballads, their dance songs, their chants, their stories. All of these things play a role for each locality in what input goes into their popular music. In this case, if you look at the treatment of marginalized youth in the UK in the 1970s next to the treatment of the workers imported from uh, Central America and the Caribbean brought this music with them, you can start to see the parallels and understand why a bunch of white punks would identify with the lives and the music and the stories of those marginalized groups that had been imported as workers. A famous song once said, in fact the singer of that song is depicted on the cover of this album, the kids are united. I like to think that if these subcultures are united that they can stand against the powers that not only oppress them but divide them. Alright, let's uh, listen to something a little more upbeat. And I'm going to get out of here, and I'll catch you guys all next time. And we're back. Thanks very much, Eric, for another great album I love segment. Interesting, he sort of went off the beaten track there without sort of talking so much about the ruts, but still a lot of uh, interesting philosophical stuff and a lot of great historical things to say about uh, the British punk to reggae scene there. So um, follow that album up. And uh, also, 
Eric will be back with his compilation edition episode of Love That Album in the next couple of weeks. So keep an ear out for that. Let's get down to the business side of things. Let's talk about where can the listeners who want to follow Shannon Hurley, both from a discussion perspective in the podcast world and in the musical world, where can they find you? My website is shannonhurley.com mm-hmm. and I have links to everything on there. Like if you like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, uh, CD Baby, Spotify, all that stuff, it's it's all on my website. And do you have gig listings? Are you still playing much around LA or is it more recording and session work? Yeah, it's, it's mostly session work or um, recording, but occasionally I'll play a show. They pop up every once in a while. Like if we decide that we're going to, you know, just do something a little different, we'll play, you know, around town. So Sure. Okay, so shannonhurley.com and also you are the regular numbers girl on Ben Eisen's all-time top 10 podcast. Plus, yes, I forget to come up with your own top 10 lists. And I think the last one you did with another man who has been on this very podcast, Mr. David Daskal. Who David Daskal. Daskal. I'm very fond of David Daskal. He's, he's <laughs> he, I'm, a, I'm a fan. He's been on this show, and, and so it's, it's good to have him on here. But you did your favorites of 2017? Yeah, we've been doing the best of every year since 2014. It's a tradition now. Well done. Well done. What's the next list that you're uh, been scheduled in for? Do you know? Um, we're doing musical theater. And it's it's going to be pre-1972, I believe. Okay. And then I think we're also doing <laughs> we're also doing a disco episode. Oh, um, you've got to get, da- you be... get Daskal in to join you for that, surely. Yes. He's, he he's might be the disco, one. He's disco king or disco stew. He, he does. He, li- he likes the late 70s disco scene. So, yeah, we'll have to see if we can do that. A diverse fellow. Hello out there. Uh, Mr. Daskal, if you're listening. Hope Mr. You Daskal. <laughs> so he just th- cut his hair. You know that, right? I did see the photo. I'm, I'm shocked because, you know, identified by that curly hair, which went all the way down his back and now it's not Maybe there. he was he was sick of being labeled, oh, you know? <laughs> I just want to say thank you so much once again for being part of this show and keeping the all-time top 10 theme in. I'm very worried about this, I have to tell you. Ben Eisen, your husband, is coming on the show in March. Would you like to come on the show as well? And he said, yes. And I think he said these words. He said, right, I wanted to select Monty Python Sings as my album. And at first I thought, he's, oh, Lord. <laughs> I thought he's joking. These are the rules. No compilation albums. I'm a bit dubious about comedy albums, but, uh, but no compilation albums. He said, no, it's Monty Python Sings or I walk. And I thought, Oh, um, are you kidding? Laying down the law. Laying down the law. I mean, what's happened there? Has he been living a life in a Hollywood caravan or something like that? Has he got a big caravan on a Hollywood film set or something like that? We do this album or I walk. I mean, what the hell, Ben Eisen? We're going to be talking about He Monty. does. And he's got, a, he's got an entourage. So, you know, I would I would listen to him if I were you. Oh, I would right. not mess with him because, you know, you, you don't want to see that ugly there, side of... There you go. So, <laughs> Ben Eisen, thy name is Mark Wahlberg. I mean, holy... Exactly. Oh, my Ooh. God. I'm, I'm very... Very, very frightened, but there you go. March, Monty Python Sings, a first because it's the first compilation album on the regular episodes. I love that album. Eric, That's awesome. Eric Reanimator does the compilation albums normally, but we're going to be doing a compilation album on Love That Album, the main edition, and it's going to be a comedy album, which we've never done, so... 
This will be an interesting one. I don't intend to do this as a song-by-song thing. We'll be talking about the humour of Python and their approach to songwriting. And I'd sort of say that I'll probably pick like maybe about four or five songs from their career to give us examples of how they were diverse. And everyone sort of says it was Eric Idle, Eric Idle, but... Well, Graham Chapman, you've just gone and pointed out the medical love song. So let's talk a little. We'll talk a little bit about that. But this is not going to be a track by track thing because that's a 20 song compilation. Yeah, you can only get so far with that. So that's my law, Ben Eisen. We're going to talk about things in a broad umbrella and then pick certain songs out to give us examples about what we're talking about. So that's right. You You better put your foot down on that. (laughs) I'm going to put my foot down on that. Yeah, Ben, I've got Shannon behind me on this. So yeah, that's right. So if you want to follow the show, Facebook, dot com forward slash groups forward slash love that album always looking to get more people to come on and give their opinions about music if you're already on the facebook group and you've been shy to put down your opinions about an album or your opinions about a podcast don't be shy it's a public forum to talk about music it's not just where i go and plug the show this is a forum for you to talk about a record that you like a record that you hate which musicians you heard snorted the best cocaine whatever anything to do with music go for it just plot something down on the page i'd I'd love to read what your thoughts are what you have to say you want to send an email send to rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au you can uh, listen to the show either download Love That Album from iTunes or you can go to lovethatalbum.blogspot.com and I think that pretty much covers everything there so um, once again Shannon Hurley thank you so very very much for uh, being on the show and as I promised earlier on it will not be that long again we will have you back (laughs) this year I make that as a promise the listeners have heard that so if I get slack, then you say it's out there, it's in the ether, it's in the the synchronicity (laughs) sphere that you said that you would have me back on in 2018. So it is going to happen this year once more. That's right. Uh, Yes. What we're going to do is go out with a lovers and poets song. And the song I've picked is one I actually mentioned earlier on because I see this as not so much from the song itself, but from the film clip. It certainly enters sting levels of nastiness. The song is <laughs> Only Bitterness Remains. The film clip, I'm not going to give it away, but watch this film clip and then watch it through to the very end because poor Ben Eisen, all I can say is it's a nasty piece of work, but a great well song. It's your Portishead song. So um, That's right. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're going out on Only Bitterness Remains. And once again, thanks so much, Shannon. Uh, really Thank you, Morris. <laughs> Okay, and until next month, everyone be nice to each other. Uh, Listen to some great music. Watch great films. Read good books. We'll see you for episode 110 of Monty Python-ridden songs. Okay, cheers. All the best. Bye.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 